welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome, friends, to this week's episode of the Bronovo Podcast. My guest this week is Robert Candell. Robert is a veteran of many business worlds. He's currently a fractional CFO, but in the past has founded an eight-figure business and has invested significant time and energy into creating resources for men to be more authentic and connect with their desires. He's able to answer some big questions about life, particularly how a man can manage one of the most challenging relationships in his life, his relationship with his father. Enjoy. So you've put a lot of personal and professional effort into sharing resources for self-improvement and one could say the improvement of humanity. Why is that? Um, I think I just get annoyed at people and I got <laughs> so annoyed with people about what I was watching and seeing that I said, well, I can just sit here and be annoyed or I actually can do something about it. Um, I think tagged with that also was my own personal work. Um, I had some experiences that showed me how little I was uh, aware of my own self and my own beliefs, my own viewpoints, my own chauvinism, my own misogyny. And I had teachers kind of reflect back to me what they saw in such a way that was so painful that I had no choice but to do something about it. Really, I had a you know, I had choice, but I chose to do something about it, and that just led to this amazing path that my life took. Amazing, and for someone who you know, this is their only exposure to you. What does that path look like? What are the activities and and things that you're doing along that along those lines? <clears throat> uh, the way I like to tell my story is I was normal till I was around twenty eight. And what I mean by normal was that I just followed that path laid out for me by my society, my religion, my parents, my father. And I was good at it. I was really good at it. You know, college, grad school, first job, second job, corporate America, suit and tie, six figures, you know, the whole 401k path. And then uh, I went to Burning Man in uh, 1998 and everything just sort of etched sketched from that spot. Um, it just was an opportunity for that week-long time in the desert that I got to see so much more than I was, that I had no awareness around. I had no idea about my sexual being. I had no idea about the part of me that didn't want to be a workaholic, the part of me that just saw how much you know more to life there was than I believed. So um, Burning Man led to exploration in San Francisco in the late 90s, which led to taking workshops and other um, experiences, psychedelics and non-monogamy and all aspects of so far away from that vanilla path that I had grown up with and, and done for 28 years. And then in 2004, started a company called One Taste, which taught about relationships, intimacy, and sexuality. Started off with a paper napkin sketch in 2004, and by 2015, had reached international eight-figure status. Um, 
I had left in mid-2014 to pursue my own path. I was pretty much done with that line. I wanted to have a different experience. So since 2014, I've had uh, my own firm, Candel Consulting, and uh, which was half thought leader and half fractional CFO. And in that thought leader side, I uh, had a podcast, I did coaching, I wrote a book, did workshops. And then on the fractional CFO side, um, just help small businesses, mostly around their finances, because I had built an eight-figure firm, I, and I, I know numbers, I do that on the other side. So uh, now, currently, in the last couple of years, I've really just kind of let go of the thought leader. You know, I had the book scratch some itch that I had, and I focus now mostly helping small companies with finances, but also team building, communication, relational, all the skills I have to help a small business. That's awesome, man. I also, I just left San Francisco. I lived there for about five years and I'm 26. So those are, you know, very formative years. So quite the, quite the town. Uh, and I think it, it gave me a similar space just to explore who I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I I had a very similar frustration and, and the thing I saw that frustrated me was just the, my peer group in the city, you know, generally an older city, kind of like that Neverland attitude where you'll meet lifelong single people and it's, it's normal and you, you'll have a group of friends of, you know, mixed ages and backgrounds and all that. And it's not, um, unordinary, but I saw my, my compatriots, if you will, of my age group kind of living in the Marina, Mm -hmm. just doing the corporate thing and hanging out with other kids that either they went to college with or they could have gone to college with based yeah. on mindset and experiences. And for there's nothing wrong with that, right? But for me, it was just such a clear thing I didn't want to do because <laughs> it was like I moved from far away to be here. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of funny that those parallels are there with our uh, our experiences in the, the mid-20s, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Well, bravo for figuring out at 26, you know, that's a pretty, you know, young age. I was pretty dumb until I was around 28, 29. Numb and dumb is what I would say. So for you to have that enlightenment early, I mean, it's just great. And then you just get to choose. I mean, the whole, there was nothing wrong with my path. It was exceptional. And and most people, I think, would covet it or want, you know, the the money and the living San Francisco. But it there was a just a disconnection between what I thought I should be and who I really was. And I think society fosters that disconnection. It doesn't give you permission. And when you do take permission, things like, you know, leaving the, the job or not going to the profession that you spent hundreds of thousands at school at, or take even a gap year at college, there's a, there's a viewpoint that you're failing or you don't know where you are, but in the questing, right. in the questing to find myself, was such a miraculous hero's journey that I feel so fortunate to have. Hell yeah, man. That's a great observation. So the society fosters that disconnection. Do you think it's an intentional fostering or a, a, a tolerated side effect of some other larger force? Well, if you think about the concept of society, it's based on fear, rules, and containment. And that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. 
Right, if you right, imagine right. seven billion dollars, <laughs> right? If you have seven billion people on this planet and limited food, and you have to get food from point A to point B, and like it's actually incredible that society exists, and you know, anarchy doesn't happen more often. But for whatever reason, you know, humans do like to live in the containment. Humans do live to to live inside structure. You know, unstructured time is really challenging for people, and so I think um, the the challenge is is when you act unconsciously in relationship to the stimuli around you. When you're responding to something from fear and you're not connected to the fear, or when you have a desire that contradicts what society tells you to do and you ignore or diminish the desire. So fear is not bad. Desire is not bad. None of it's bad. It's just when you non-confront it, when you're not in relationship with it, that's where things tend to go askew. My biggest faux pas or miscues in life is when I'm not connected to either my fear or my desire and I act it out in unconscious ways. So I don't think the containment is bad. It's just with your relationship to it. And, you know, what I found is every rule that's been handed to me that I've questioned, I've learned to dance with and play with for the betterment of my life. I'm not saying ignore or bypass or destroy the rules. It's to dance with the rules. So my father told me that I was a biological failure because I did not produce a son, an heir. He. This, this is a direct quote. This is not... It's something I thought he said. This is a direct <laughs> quote of what he's, yeah. Yeah, you are a biological failure because you did not hold on the family name. That was his viewpoint. Right, right. And so when I first heard that, of course, I was like, you know, can I, can I swear? Uh, oh, can I yes. Sw- yeah, so I was like, fuck you, dad. Just like, like you know, but then <laughs> once I learned to dance with what he was saying, and once I got to see his viewpoints, that viewpoint no longer had control over me. I could understand that his that was his old school mentality. That was his belief system. His belief system is right for him. It's not right for me. And so another, rather being persecuted by that really challenging viewpoint, I learned to dance with it. And in the dance, that's where the freedom existed. Freedom exists in, in all conditions if you're willing to dance with the containment. That's a great, that's a great idea. And I, I find parallels to not identifying with our beliefs. So for example, the ability to discuss tough ideas without being governed by emotion, uh, kind of a similar concept of, okay, this person's beliefs are here. I don't need to react emotionally only. I can also react with some type of creativity or a more logical, a rational approach maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your the time between stimuli and your response is where mastery exists. So most people have some stimuli, you know, a fr- uh, your partner yelling at you, you are an asshole. So that's the stimuli. And you might have done something to incite the assholeness, or you might not. But anyway, your partner says you're an asshole. Or um, worse, like, uh, 
you don't see me or something just that really gets you know stuck. And then is your response to push back, oh yeah, well you don't blah 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 or you know is it are you protecting your <laughs> ego are you it's just it's that that moment that millisecond can you extend that millisecond to 10 milliseconds to 100 milliseconds to a second to 2 seconds to 3 seconds to take a breath and to be like okay my partner's upset with me rather than try to defend rather than try to win can i be connected to her anger or his anger but you know their anger in order to understand their world so I can be connected to them. Okay, I hear you're angry. I don't know why you think I'm an asshole, but I'm curious. That's where mastery exists. It's the distance between the stimuli and your response. I love that. So at the top, you said you got frustrated with people's, it sounds like unawareness, not questioning the status quo. Uh, are there other specific behaviors that kind of drove you over the top or was it kind of more just seeing a general um, sheeple, <laughs> proliferation of sheeple? <laughs> well, I mean, I got really into the man-woman dynamics. That's that's where my career started in the thought leader side of my world. And I... You know, my story was I made a total fool of myself in a workshop. It's, it's a, you know, beginning of the book. It's like I made a total fool of myself in a workshop. And in that moment, I had the, uh, the, the moment where I saw that I was a chauvinistic, misogynistic, and had no awareness of my first wife, Carol. And I had two options at that point. One was to uh, go back to the man cave, you know, go back to my status quo, you know, uh, fortify my ego. Right. The other option, the one I took was like, okay, I don't really want to be a chauvinist. I don't want to be a misogynist. I, I don't want to uh, not understand this woman, my quote, best friend. I want to understand her experience. So I dove into that with all my fervor. So what I see you know, with people is just this unconsciousness. And, you know, in terms of, you know, all genders have this unconsciousness, but I I put more attention on the men because one, I could relate to my own stories, emit my own humanity to hopefully have them see their own humanity. And there's so much men, there's so much that men don't understand about women. There's so much men don't understand about themselves. There's so much men don't understand about privilege. There's so much men don't understand about communication and power dynamics. And they think everything is okay if A, B, and C. A, uh, they have a girlfriend. B, they're having sex. C, they have money. D, they have a nice car. You know, whatever that list is. And there's always an opportunity for more mastery. There's always an op- uh, more opportunity to optimize and get better. And so what frustrated me was just this men's lack of awareness, their unwillingness to dig and look at their shadow and look at themselves so they could become better people. And in a today's society, in this polarized, insane society that we live in today, there's so much opportunity for every person. But, you know, I focus on men just to become better human beings to enhance the overall ecosystem that we live in. Awesome. Yeah. Likewise, 
a big revelation for me. It actually was this, it's, it's in the astrology world. So definitely not scientific, but there's a birthday book. Have you ever heard of it? And so for each yeah, for, day of the year. Yeah. yeah big. And yeah. I, I've seen it. Yeah. It's great. It, uh, I, I read mine for the first time and you know, a lot of it did really resonate with things like, uh, the positive attributes identified with and also the negative ones, which were uh, a need for to be right. Um, kind of like a surface level kindness, but actually reacting with real bitterness. If anyone uh, didn't approve of me or didn't agree with me and a little bit of a um, power control type of tendency. So I've seen those things in myself. And I think that it's interesting because a lot of the realizations we've come to as a society, especially around things like men's privilege, there's also a counteracting force where men are kind of, are encouraged or not allowed to be fully human in the identification and expression of emotions and just feeling life. You know, I think when you, I heard actually a really great line about a man was saying before this experience he had, uh, he had only previously allowed himself or knew how to feel from above the neck and below the waist. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of like the areas where it's okay. You know, you're allowed to be smart. You're allowed to be sexual, but don't be emotional. Don't be heartfelt, you know? And it's just so dumb, you know, again, like thinking about things critically and logically, it's like, why would, why would anyone just accept that? It's a clearly ineffective way to operate. Yeah. As a social being, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? The men are allowed to cry at sporting events and when an animal dies. Right. I mean, it's, it's like, that's pretty much allowed, you know, we're allowed to, we're allowed to emote both by both genders foster this viewpoint. And there's a, there's a growing compared to now 2022, let's say to, to 1970 when I grew up or 1980s, when, you know, I was growing up to even the two thousands, there's epically more opportunity for men's humanity where, you know, compared to even 20 years ago. And there's lots of societal reasons for those pieces. And I'm I, I'm really happy about that. There is a movement for, for men to be a full human being. And it's the bell curve, right? There's a there's a section of men who are allowed to have emotions. There's a section of men who are never show emotions or they would die. And then there's the mainstream of society that's still, you know, questing for, you know, permission to to show all of us. And so I think we're we're in the right direction, definitely better now than 20 years ago. And there's still a long way to go. For sure. On the relationships and uh, gender dynamic stuff, have you ever come across the red pill Sure. Dating stuff online. Yeah. What I I came I had someone on who was talking about this stuff in a good like he was for it, and I had never come across it. And um I think it so essentially takes vulnerable men and feeds this narrative of women are the problem. And I found it interesting because it plays upon a common a common theme of a vulnerable person and, and also plays into how polarization kind of digital extremism or what, you know, bubbles we can create for ourselves. And 
essentially whatever ecosystem someone chooses to embed themselves in online or with a peer group can manifest into the real world. And it's all the way to things we see like shooters who have written manifestos, right. About these ideas they learned online. Um, yeah. So from a societal perspective, what do you think, where do you think this is going actually, rather than solutions first, you know, with the current state of how polarized and online young men are, say my age and younger, what do you think the next 10 years hold? Well, so this has been going on forever in different shapes and forms, uh, anger and hate. You know, when it comes down to it, I think a lot of it has to do with men's um, persecution, the persecution of men around their desire. I think if men were, women in general are allowed to feel their desire and emote their emotions and be more connected to their feelings. This is the, in the, in the bell curve, right? Of course, there's extremes on different sides, but there, women are permitted in society. In the middle of the bell curve, men are not permitted still to feel their feelings. What happens when you, tr- you have a nuclear power plant exploding and you put a paper sack around it? Well, the paper sack disintegrates. And I think that's the analogy of what men are with their desire is that they have desires that they can't or not permitted even by themselves, even in their most quiet moments in their heart of hearts to fully investigate and explore. So my viewpoint is that the violence that we see has a lot to do with men inability to connect to their desire. And when you can't connect to your desire, then you go to your fear. And when you go into your fear, then you tend to go into your anger. And when you don't have the foundation of self-responsibility, self-esteem, and self-love, then you look externally for this validation. And then these individual men or these groups of men, without the ability to self-love and self-generate, look externally, are not validated by the world, specifically women they are attracted to, and then the anger multiplies. And then we're in the cycle of increasing nuclear power plants inside these men's souls without an escape until they do something. It could be as simple as self-harm. It, well, not simple, but it can be as you know, minute in scale of self-harm or even self-harm in terms of words. It can be as expansive as this plethora of violence we see, gun violence, as the most you know, overt version in our society. And the number of gun violence is exponentially increasing every year. So the question is, what do we do about it? Or what's the, what's, you know, what's the next 10 years going to be like? I think it's going to get worse. I think until society does a major internal inventory to investigate this, this, this chasm between a man and his desire, let's even call it the masculine, the masculine and their desire, we're going to continue to see this unconscious release in terms of violent acts. The red pill movement, which was pop more popular around the turn of the decade, you know, the O's into the teens, you know, 2007, 6, 8, 9, 10, 
to me was just another overt um, expression of this anger without an outlay. And if you look, you know, I don't know how, what your political views are, but um, I, I don't like Donald Trump. I've never liked Donald Trump because he uses anger and fear to instill motivation. I can't say I'm a tried and true Democrat. I think there's problems on that side too. But what I what I was happy when Trump was out of office because I would listen to his communication style and I would see all the tricks that he would do to move people through fear and extrapolate fear. And so, you know, in terms of the societal, we, there was the last thing we needed. It was a release, you know, on some level, Trump was a release. On the some level, we need uh, more someone to build the bridge for people with their disconnection to their desire, dis disconnection from their feelings. And I think that's the approach. So the next 10 years has got to get worse. And then hopefully after that, society will wake up and start to see some approach to increase education and opportunity to change the social norm around men and their desire. I think that's the only thing that's really going to save or, or ameliorate violence in society. Okay, so this chasm is is central the, uh, between the masculine and their desire. What are some of those examples of desires you've seen from clients throughout the years? Oh, wow. I mean, my belief is that most people fear one thing. They fear dying alone under a bridge. If you could have the visual of what people fear, it's isolated, unloved, destitute, and dying alone. And so what men do is avoid that path to that outcome. And that what men do is they start to build facades, legends, um, costumes around them to avoid ending up dying alone under a bridge. What happens is when you build these facades, and some are paper thin, and some are like a, you know, a mile thick, you start to build the disconnection between your true self and the, you know, you, you start to fool yourself in a way. And so in my clients, there's a lot, there's always been a chasm between, I have a client who wanted to be an artist and his dad said, I won't support you if you become an artist, only if you become an architect. And so what he did is out of the fear of destitute, he wasn't an artist, he didn't go to art school, he became an architect and he did well as an architect, but there was always that disconnection between his true love, which was art. And so here he is, 60 years old, finally, you know, finally <laughs> connecting to his artist. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a good example of how fear of X, Y, and Z stops us from living our path. I, you know, I was a great example. I was 20 years old. I was in corporate America. I was living my father's wet dream. And <laughs> I was... 40 pounds overweight. I was a workaholic. I was married. I had a house I was never at. I was disconnected from the wife I was married to. And I was becoming a, a carbon copy of him. And I thought it was everything right. And my first wife, Carol, on some level, was my, right, my white rabbit. And, you know, 
saved me from that by saying, this isn't going to work, Rob. You either can go down that path and become your dad, or you can, it wasn't this eloquent, <laughs> definitely, but underneath it was, you can go down the path, become your dad, or you can follow this other path and find out who you really are. And she was, her her pitch was compelling that I totally etch a sketch my life to get here. And there were some rough times on that path, many thousands of rough moments, but I'm so grateful that I made that choice. hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. Following this conversation with our guest, I'll be giving my reflections in the conversation, what we discussed, and what stood out to me most. Get involved in the conversation. Find me on Instagram at Bro Nouveau Pod or send me an email, thomas at bronouveau.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Enjoy the rest of the show. Is your dad still with us? Nope. He died uh, two years ago. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm not. How, wh- you're not? Okay. Yeah. How was his assessment of your life at the end of his life? Did he did he change? Did he evolve with you? Or no. No, no. 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 Okay. So my dad dying. One, he was sick for the last three or four years of his life. So it wasn't like he had a quality of life. He also leaned heavily on my mom, who became his caretaker. He also um you know, he couldn't walk more than 10 steps without resting. It was it was bad at the end. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so if his quality of life was better and he died, I wouldn't say I'm sad he died because I think his, he was done emotionally, physically, energetically. I just want to say that because it kind of sounded kind of cold. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, his death freed my mom, but also freed me from having the largest critic in the world alive. Now, I have to deal with the ghost of him, which lives inside of me. And uh, um, he never quite forgave me for breaking the path that he had laid out for me. To his, he still disapproved. I was supposed to have a several million dollar four hundred one k by this point. I was supposed to, you know, run my own business. I was supposed to have three grandchildren, you know, two boys and a girl. Like I was supposed to have all these things. I didn't produce. So I was a biological and a financial failure. Oh, he also once told me I was a financial failure. Anyway, the point is, is that. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Uh, and he thought that was love. That's right. what people Cause that's do. Because that's how he was loved, right? That's what his, his viewpoints were. Now, my dad's, I used to call, I wrote this post about he died. Is that my dad had a beard in the 1970s. And I would say that he would rub his face against mine when I was a kid and I hated it. But it, like I rubbed against him my entire life to make me a better man. Mm. And by the time mm-hmm. he died, about two years before he died, in the middle of a medicine journey, I completed with him, which took about 20 years. But I completed with him. And I finally stopped 
trying to make him into the father I wanted and started to finally see that he was a man and I could love him for who he was. I could have my own self-parenting. I no longer needed him to be a father. This is 48 years old, but I no longer needed him to be a father. I had what it took inside of me to self-generate. And in those last two years of his life, I could just love him for who he was. I didn't really like him, but I could just love him for who he was. And then the peace for me, that's nothing to do with him. The peace for me, the sanity and the, 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 the empowerment of that is priceless. There's, there's nothing more important than the atonement of the father. There's nothing more important than uh, stop trying to coerce your parents into making them to something they're not. Well said, and thank you for sharing that. You've used a few analogies, uh, White Rabbit, Hero's Journey, Atonement of the Father. So what is this paradigm for, for viewing life? Is there a name for it, or is it just a kind of collection of analogies that are helpful for, for orienting? The... Um... If you, you know, I once read a mem- uh, a book by Stephen King on how to write when I was younger. It was an epic, epic book because I always liked to write. And then in the book, I believe <laughs> I made this up, but I'm pretty sure he said, if you <laughs> want to be a writer, you have to read books. You have to read in order to become a great writer. Check and so it. I've always, I've always been a reader my entire life. And when I was writing my book, I read like close to a hundred books, not all of them to entirety in a year to get the flavor of the book I was writing. And it was such an empowerment. It was such a wonderful experience just to, to read these books. And in my book, there's a list of my 25 favorites in the back. Um, and so I'm a collection of other people's viewpoints. You know, we're all a collection of other people's viewpoints that we've you know, put into our blender and morphed and shaped and reformed into our own viewpoints. And so some of my favorites are, you know, some of the terms that I use. Uh, White Rabbit, of course, is Alice in Wonderland. Uh, you know, the classic story of falling down the rabbit hole. And that was that was me at 29 or 28 in Burning Man and 29 when I started my journey. Really straight-laced, you know, normal guy. Really, I mean, just normal, boring, nice guy. Falling down a rabbit hole of sex, um, anarchy, non-monogamy, just this epic journey for really heavy hardcore for about 20 years. And so that was really, you know, Carol was my white rabbit, my opportunity to leave the stayed path. In connection to that is Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is a, actually a difficult book to read, but so important if you can, because Joseph Campbell describes what he calls the monomyth, these similar 12 steps that every hero takes in his or her journey. And there's different, you know, steps along the way. And, um, you know, it's it basically, if you think about um, Luke Skywalker was in the book, you know, and Star Wars is based on a hero's journey. The whole, the first, the first three movies, well, four, five, and six, but, you know, the first set of movies was based on the hero's journey. Uh, George Lucas, you know, read that book and consulted with George, Campbell, but it's, you know, Luke was normal and then all of a sudden his 
his uncle and aunt died and then he falls down the rabbit hole and he meets his mentor. He has to atone with his father. He's got to hang out and see that Darth Vader is his dad. And the whole thing is, is the hero's journey. And so the atonement of the father is really an important piece because once you get in relation for a man, and I, you know, I'll just speak for a man because I'm not a woman, but from a man's point of view, his relationship with his father is very complex. It's competitive. There's approval. There's permission. There's biology. But if you can get in atonement, if you can get in relationship, if you can forgive and be forgiven, that's you know an important piece of the hero's journey. And it really wasn't until I was 48. This was you know 20 years on the road that I really got to the point of peace. And like I said before, it was such an epic relief to uh, no longer be fighting against a ghost, a fight that I could never win. Yeah, that checks out. I'm thinking about myself, you know, my relationship with my dad and the group of friends I have from high school, about six or seven guys who I'm so close with. And those old friendships are really interesting because we all kind of evolved in real time. Yeah. So. I, when I sometimes when I hang with friends from home, they say things and bring up things and context about my path that I hadn't thought of or forgot about. And it's like, man, these guys have a repository on me deeper than I do in some ways. But anyway, thinking about their relationship with their fathers, I think it's true for almost every single one of us of, of having that forgive and be forgiven element. And in the analogy of a great journey, you know, summoning a peak, it would make sense that, you know, whether it's evolution, the divine intervention, whatever it is, that for each man, this element of cresting that peak is part of it because it's so humbling, it's so complicated, it's so infuriating, vulnerable, all of these. uh, And also, you know, I'm thinking also about people who don't know or don't have a father. So how do you coach someone through that if they never knew their dad or their dad is dead or one of these variations of of not having a father? Yeah, obviously it's tougher. And on some level it's not. So me, for those listening, my left hand is me. My right hand is my dad. And then the space between my two hands is the relationship. I'm never in relationship to my dad directly. I'm in relationship to the relationship, the, 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 the je ne sais quoi, the blob between the two. So we each relate <laughs> to the relationship. How, you know, do we ever truly see the man? Does, does my father ever truly see me? That depends on what's in the middle. And in the middle is the story. So my dad said, you know, you're a biological failure. He throws that into the blob. And then I'm in relationship with that very charged term. And then when he first said it, I was like, ah, fuck you. And then by the time I was 48, I was like, oh, you're, you know, you're just X, Y, and Z. We don't have to go into the details of it. So my evolution which has nothing to do with him. It all has to do with me and my choices and my own self-work. 
So if you have a man without a father, whether being abandoned or uh, died or left or all these horrible things that happen to young men, especially these days, you know, you know, young men being raised by a single mother, which is heartbreaking for the environment. It's heartbreaking for the son. It's heartbreaking for the mother who has to hold both roles, which I can't even imagine. The siblings and the and so what happens to those young men is either they see the father in the mother, the father figure in the mother, or they look for other father figures in their lives. And that can be as that could be a mythical character. It could be a Will Smith or a Robin Williams or you know some other you can make up a father figure. So again, they're the other side of the blob and you're relating to that story as much as possible. So for a man who, who's never had a father, I can only theorize because obviously I didn't have this experience. You know, the question I would have is what's your belief? You know, what does the father mean to you? What attributes make up a father? What are your relationship to the father? What kind of father would you want to be? Like you can still have that active inquiry into your own set of viewpoints, even if you didn't have a physical father. And then from there, you can build your own set of rules and ideas and concepts and viewpoints based on this. You know, I had great father figures beyond my father in my life. I had kind of like eight or nine. I once did this, you know, I think I had a podcast or writing on it. And, you know, a football coach, um, Bill Murray was on there. Um, you know, just all these different father figures. I had a great, great uh, electrical engineering professor when I was at USC. Uh, he was uh, Dr. Choma, like you know, t- 25 years ago. It epically changed the way I viewed the profession. And so who are these father figures in your life and what's your viewpoints in relationship to them? You don't have that direct stimuli of, you know, a father saying you're a biological failure. And at the same time, you can have as rich a relationship with the father figure as your imagination allows. Hmm. So in this paradigm, the blob is inextricably linked to our psyche in some way. Yeah. And, and the assumption is that also for the father. And from my experience, that checks out. I think especially I would imagine as quality time as a young kid increases, so does that link. But is there a scenario for people out there who don't experience that blob or maybe choose to cut it out? And what are the consequences of cutting it out? Is that even possible? My viewpoint is it's impossible. You may choose to non-confront. You may choose to avoid. You may choose to ignore. And my viewpoint is, is no matter what, in your dreams or in your quiet times, you're still in some form of relating. And maybe that relating is how much energy you take to put your hand up and say no. How many times are we in relationship with someone 
the relationship ends. So you're dating someone, you date someone for six months. It's a great relationship, you know, and then it ends and then they leave. And then you spend the next year still relating to them in your head. You're having arguments with them in your head. You hear a song and you have a memory. You get a smell. Ooh, the smells are the worst, right? Right to the hippocampus, right? <coughs> Excuse me. You have, something happens where you're still in relationship. You know, you you have a memory. I mean, I have memories of people from 30 years ago and it pops up and I have this fond little memory. You're still in relationship with them. It may not be in the forefront of your mind like a physical person, but those relationships, those ghosts, they can kick your ass for the rest of your life if you choose not to not confront them. And I have had clients, I have a, I have a client that was adopted. He was uh, international, was, I don't remember what happened with birth parents, it doesn't even matter. He came to the States, he was adopted by a, a Caucasian couple. And he's a you know 20, 30, 35 year old man still in relationship with his adopt his real parents, and the impact of being left and adopted. He's on his hero's journey to get in relationship with that. That's his mastery, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they're still in relationship. So my I guess my main point is if you think you can just excise something out, I don't believe you can. It's going to gain debt, like a credit card debt with exponential interest. So it's best to confront the things in your life. Well said. I, I agree. I think there's a, some, something karmic about that, especially I believe in the realm of being mischievous or doing something wrong, lying, for example, those things I believe always come back around. And there, yeah. Yeah, there really is no way to get away with it in the end. You know, maybe even if it's twenty years after someone dies, you know, the truth comes out. And I think that kind of karmic inevitability also happened with the people we're bonded to especially the parents, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, Rob. That's awesome. I think that's a good, a good capstone or a bookend rather. Thank you so much. A lot of stuff, really interesting things to think about. And thank you for sharing your, your cumulative uh, wisdom. And, and My pleasure. For those who want to hear more of your thoughts and check out the stuff you're producing, uh, where would you direct them? Uh, my website is robertcandell.com. Uh, my link to my book, Unhidden, a book for men and those confused by them, is on there. You can also find it on Amazon. And then I have a podcast that I no longer do. It's been about two years now. Um, but you can find that still online. It's called Tough Love. <coughs> Excuse me. Tough, T-U-F-F, Love. And I did uh, about five years of podcasts. So some there's some good stuff up there. So um, And on my website, if you want to connect or talk or 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 do a free consultation. Again, you can find that at robertcandell.com. Awesome. Thank you, Robert. Have a wonderful day, man, and have a lovely My weekend. Pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. I appreciate it, Thomas.
Welcome, friends. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Rob. I certainly did. I found some of his concepts to be pretty thought-provoking, particularly the idea of mastery is the space between an input or a triggering event or a stimuli and our response to it. It's kind of a more specific way of describing the concept of we can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we react to it. The other thing that I really liked was the concept of the blob. And also on a more philosophical level, the idea or the question that is it possible to separate ourselves from those fundamental childhood relationships or the people in our lives who are so woven into the fabric of our existence? Is it possible to create separation from that? Probably depends on everyone's perf- everyone's specific experiences. But even for someone who, I would imagine for someone who didn't know a close family member or had a sibling or a parent who passed away or they never knew, their absence or, or the the non-knowledge of that person still may be a important part of their conception of reality, subconsciously or consciously. So I thought that blob was very interesting in, in the, the idea of we don't see the other person, we see what they put into the blob. And their perception of us is likewise diluted or phased through that. So I thought that was really interesting and good topics for sure. So big thank you to Rob for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please send it out to a friend or someone who would find it interesting. And I hope you're having an awesome week. We'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau Podcast. Thank you.